This morning's text is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. If you'd like to follow along, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. It's Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when this will be, and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the close of the age. And Jesus answered them, Take heed that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, my heart is so burdened with the possibility that many in this room could become cold as wickedness is multiplied in our land. Many don't even think of it as a danger. They're not vigilant at all. They don't tremble at the prospect that they could be just nominal religious people who inherited something from their parents and as righteousness wanes and wickedness is multiplied, they could become ice cold and lost, never having been truly born of God, never having been set aflame to burn forever in the kingdom of righteousness. Father, would you use this moment in your word to quicken the dead and to awaken the slumbering and to edify the saints and to empower us for mission and to clarify the truth concerning the gospel of the kingdom which we are now charged to take into all the world as a testimony to all the peoples before the end comes. I ask this in the name of Jesus, the King. 
Amen. This is the fourth message now in a series called Compassion, Power, and the Kingdom of God. The first message was an introductory one in which I tried to make plain why the issue of power and spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare and prophecy and evangelism and so on is so important for us to grapple with in these days of unprecedented spiritual activity in the world and unprecedented progress in world missions. The second message was posing the question, what are we up against? What is the counter kingdom to the kingdom of God? What can we expect in opposition from the kingdom of darkness? How much power does Satan have in the world? And how is God's sovereignty superior over that? The third message was last week's message on abortion. One kind of darkness in this age of gloom. And whether or not it is a biblically legitimate demonstration of the kingdom of power and light for Christians to peacefully, nonviolently, and civilly disobediently to say no. And today, I begin a three-part message on the kingdom of God proper. What is it? And more specifically in today's text, verse 14 of Matthew 24, what is the gospel of the kingdom? The reason this is important, I hope, is manifest from verse 14. Let me read it with you again. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The reason this is important is because that prophecy is not yet fulfilled. The gospel of the kingdom has not yet been preached among all the peoples. Nations, you know, I hope at least those of you who have been around a while know that nations does not refer to Romania and East Germany and China and Mongolia and North Korea and Australia and America and Ecuador. Those are not nations in the biblical understanding of nations. Nations are Sioux Indians, Iroquois, Ojibwe, Azerbaijan Muslims, and so on. There are thousands upon thousands of nations in the world, and only about 223 countries, political states. Do not confuse the two. What hasn't been done yet in the, in the ministry of the church is the penetrating of all these Peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, as they're called in Revelation 5.9. And therefore, verse 14 says, this must still happen. The gospel of the kingdom must be preached to these peoples. Which means we better know what that is. Do you know this morning what the gospel of the kingdom is? Could you define the kingdom of God? And then, what the gospel of the kingdom is. That's why I think this is a tremendously important verse and topic for us, because the mandate of the church is to finish carrying the gospel of the kingdom to all the peoples where it hasn't yet penetrated as a testimony. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is try to tackle that. What is the kingdom and what is the gospel of the kingdom? And next week, we're going to pose the question, is it present or future? 
And the third week, we're going to get very practical and say, how is it present? Namely, what manifestations of the power of the kingdom ought we to look for and expect today? That's the outline for the next three weeks. So today the question is, what does this phrase, gospel of the kingdom, refer to in Matthew 24, 14? So let's begin by asking, does that phrase, gospel of the kingdom, occur anywhere else in the Bible? Anywhere else in Matthew? And the answer is, it occurs two other places in all the Bible. And they're both in Matthew. And I refer you to Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35. And the reason these two verses are important is at least twofold. One, they are both summary statements of the teaching of Jesus. And very interestingly, they are like pieces of bread which sandwich a double-decker mighty sandwich in the meal of the Gospel of Matthew. And the sandwich is... uh, 423 to 935, and it has two pieces of meat in it. The first piece of meat is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And the second piece of meat are ten typical miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. And the bread, sandwiching these two big pieces of meat, the word ministry and the deed ministry of Jesus, are Matthew 423 and Matthew 935. Let's read these. He went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There it is, the exact same phrase. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. Now, 9.35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There it is, same phrase. And healing every disease and every infirmity. So you can see by the repetition and by the summary nature that what we have in these two verses is a kind of uh, distillation of what Jesus said and did in his life and ministry. He preached the gospel of the kingdom and he healed diseases. He preached the gospel of the kingdom and he healed diseases. He preached Matthew 5 to 7. He healed and did mighty works, Matthew 8 and 9. So for Matthew, at least, you can say, I think, with a high degree of certainty, the gospel of the kingdom is the message of Jesus. That's what he preached. That's what he brought. Now, let's go outside to Matthew and see if we can get some light on this from Mark. Because Mark, the very beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, gives some introductory words that are very close in their phraseology to the gospel of the kingdom. And I want to read these two verses and then branch out from there to the Old Testament so that we can get a sense of what kind of time it is that's being fulfilled here. Mark 1.14 Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The gospel of God is what he preached. And saying, here's the content of his gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So there's the kingdom as the content of the gospel of God. Repent and believe the gospel. So it begins with gospel, it ends with gospel. 
And in the middle you have the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe. So I think you would agree, wouldn't you, that even though the phrase gospel of the kingdom isn't used here in these two verses, the idea of the gospel of the kingdom is plainly here. The kingdom of God is at hand, (coughs) repent and believe the gospel, namely the gospel of the kingdom, that the time is fulfilled. Question now, what time is fulfilled? What is this gospel of the kingdom which says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand? What's the time he's talking about? What is being fulfilled here? And for that, we need to go back and think a little bit about the Old Testament expectation of the future. Now, when you think about the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, you run into an obstacle right off the bat, namely that the term never occurs in the Old Testament. That is, the exact phrase, kingdom of God, isn't there. The idea of God's kingdom is all over the Old Testament. Let me try to get at it from two angles. When you read the Old Testament, you learn very quickly that the Old Testament writers believed that God was the king from everlasting to everlasting. His throne was in the heavens. He rules over all. Not one thing happens on this earth apart from the decrees of King Jehovah. So there is a kingdom. It is in place. God is on the throne. You don't have to put him there. And nothing is coming. He reigns. Now, that's a lesson that's plain in the Old Testament. The kingdom is there. For example, Psalm 103:19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. It's there. Christ, preexistent with the Father, reigning over the universe. Or Psalm 145:13. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Had no beginning, it'll never have an end. Thy dominion endures through all generations. So let's get out of our heads any thought that there was a time when the kingdom was not. That God was not king over all, forever and ever, blessed in heaven. Therefore, what might Jesus mean when he says... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand, around the corner, on the horizon. The rays are coming up. What is this? If God has established his throne in the heavens and rules over all, if his kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting and his dominion endures from generation to generation, what's this coming onto the scene here? The answer is that in the Old Testament, not only is the kingly rule of God pictured as a dominion and an authority and a sovereign rule over all things in heaven and on earth, but the expectation is cherished that someday the king is going to, in a way, unprecedented intrude into this sinful world. And no longer will he be king ruling over the affairs of sinful men, but he will be king dispersing sinful men, overcoming sin, getting rid of his enemies, establishing a throne of peace and righteousness here on the earth, not simply controlling the affairs of sinful men, but banishing ungodliness from the world and erecting a throne of righteousness and peace 
on the earth. That was the hope that they cherished. That was the coming of the kingdom that they longed for. That the king would, as it were, stand forth in new glory, in new intimacy, and break in in a new personal way so that his enemies would flee and his people would be sanctified and made holy and pure and peace would be brought and the sword would be beat into a plowshare. That was the coming of the kingdom that they were hoping for. Now let me cite a text or two that refers to this. For example, Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will become king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one and His name one. Now the Lord reigns today. But... There is coming a day when his reign will just stand forth in amazing power and glory so that he will be one and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and have to say, there's only one. Right now, as you look around the world, it looks like there are many, many little kings and potentates popping up. Even we ourselves often longing to be our own king. In that day... Every such thought will be banished. Every such competitor will be gone. And there will be one Lord and one King manifest as the ruler over all the earth. Isaiah 24, 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And before his elders, he will manifest his glory. There is much glory yet to be manifested of the King of glory. Much glory that is, as it were, concealed. And that glory is going to stand forth someday. And the whole earth will be filled with glory as the waters cover the sea. That's the expectation of the kingdom that they longed for. And that's the time that Jesus says is fulfilled. When he came. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. God is about to exert his rule in an unprecedented way in the world to save his people and defeat their enemies and establish his righteousness and glorify himself. Now, let's take a few other illustrations of how this was coming into the world. Take John the Baptist. Matthew 3 verse 2 says, John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet all of the gospels, all four of them say that John's life was a fulfillment of Isaiah 40 verse 3, which goes like this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Why? Because God's coming in a new way. God's breaking forth in a new authority and a new exertion of his kingly power. And John the Baptist was there simply to make the way straight, to prepare hearts so that when the kingdom broke in and the Lord stood forth in new glory, they would be ready to receive it and recognize it when he came. Verse 5 of that text in Isaiah, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
When Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He means there's good news coming, and the good news is that the kingdom is here, and that's the time that is fulfilled. The long-awaited, unprecedented intrusion into history of God's great, glorious demonstration of saving power by which he will defeat his enemies and erect a rule of righteousness and justice and peace and holiness in the world. Here's another place where it happens. You remember that text in Luke 4 where Jesus comes into Nazareth in the synagogue and he takes the scroll and he opens it to Isaiah 61 and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the scroll and he sat down and he said, Today, this scripture, this acceptable year, this dynamic intrusion of kingly power for liberation and healing has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which simply means the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is on the horizon. Repent and believe the good news. Salvation is here in me. Jesus is the king. Let's take one more look at an Old Testament connection. It's the one from which we take the song that we sang, Our God Reigns, and we'll close with that song again this morning. It's Isaiah 52.7, and I want to draw your attention to Isaiah 52.7 because of all the verses in the whole Old Testament, I don't think there is a clearer definition of the gospel of the kingdom. Because in this verse... The term gospel is used twice, and then the content of the gospel is defined as the reign of God, the kingdom. Let me read it with you. Now, before I read it, I should refer to the context of verse 10. We're going to read verse 7, but in Isaiah 52:10, it says, uh, He will bear his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and uh, the whole earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, let's read verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel, good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings gospel of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion. Now, before I read the next phrase, I want to make sure you get the flow of thought here. You have a messenger who's coming. He is publishing peace, and this peace and publishment is caused, called twice, good tidings, good tidings. And then it says, who says, and this is the content of the message, who says, your God reigns. That is the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Your God reigns is the content and that makes sense as gospel when you realize that it's the breaking in, this new, unprecedented intrusion into human life of the power of God to overcome sin, to banish the enemies of God's people, to erect a kingdom of righteousness, to display God's glory in a new, personal and intimate way. Then you can hear it as gospel. 
before which we need to repent because we've gone after so many other gods. We've gone after so many other pleasures. We've sold our soul to so many other lords. Now we need to repent and renounce all of that and then believe, trust in the glorious grace of God that is being manifested in the coming of the kingdom. So, the gospel message of the gospel of the kingdom was announced by John the Baptist, was fulfilled by Jesus on that day, and it was not merely a message that God reigns as the sovereign over all the universe who governs every dead bird's fall from every limb in this world, but the intrusion, the breaking in, the unprecedented coming into power and action in the world of that kind of authority to save from sin, to banish enemies, to erect a new kingdom. God is the king in both of those ways. Now, this is easily misunderstood. In fact, next week we're going to see that everybody misunderstood it when it happened. Because my guess is that if you hadn't all, or most of you, grown up on the Bible, you'd be misunderstanding it right now because of the very tone of my voice, because of the very exultation with which I'm speaking, because of the very language of triumph with which I have spoken. You'd misunderstand, too, that the kingdom would be established through suffering and death. It was unspeakable the way it happened. It was unthinkable that it would happen the way it happened. It couldn't happen this way. And that's what we'll talk about next week. But this week, what I want to try to get across is this. The gospel of the kingdom was foretold in the Old Testament... The gospel of the kingdom was preached by Jesus. The gospel of the kingdom was foretold as being preached by every generation of Christians to all the unreached peoples until the end should come. And what I want to turn to as we close is this. The gospel of the kingdom was preached by the early church. Now, I'm not going to go into any detail about that form of theology which divvies up the preaching of the kingdom so that it doesn't happen in this age in which we live and happens again in the tribulation. I don't think it has a leg to stand on in a text like this. This text, Matthew 24, 14, says very plainly to all who will hear in the flow of the thought, that this gospel is the gospel Jesus preached, the gospel the apostles will preach, and the gospel that we ought to preach until the end comes. Now, I need to confirm that about the apostles and the early church by directing your attention first to the book of Acts and then briefly to the epistles. There are summary passages in the book of Acts that make it very plain that the apostles saw it their duty in response to Jesus' predictions and commands to carry on with the preaching of the kingdom. They did not undertake to preach a different gospel than Jesus preached. They preached the gospel that Jesus preached. This is manifest as you read these summary statements. For example, 
In Acts 8, verse 12, you have a portrait of Philip's preaching. And what makes this text so crucial is that Philip uses language that even though the noun gospel of the kingdom is not used, the verb to gospel the kingdom is used. And so it's almost identical to Matthew 24, 14. And here it is being preached to a people group called the Samaritans who were as yet unreached until the missionaries arrived. And what it says is that, this is verse 12 of chapter 8, they believed Philip as he, and then the RSV says, preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, literally, it's the verb, he gospeled the kingdom of God or gospeled concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. The new thing that comes with the apostolic heralding is the making explicit that Jesus is the center of the kingdom message. That the death and resurrection of Jesus now are the center of the proclamation of the way God has chosen to begin to establish his rule in the lives of men and bring his kingdom into the world. That Jesus didn't make as clear as the apostles make clear. That's the new thing. But it isn't a new gospel. It isn't a new declaration of the kingdom. It is a clarification on that side of the resurrection that Jesus is the king. And through him the kingdom has come and therefore he should be lifted up and his name should be exalted wherever the kingdom is preached. Here's a couple more summary statements that show you how Paul ministered in Acts 19.8, where you have Luke explaining what Paul did as he entered for three months into the synagogues in Ephesus. Acts 19.8 says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, arguing and pleading about the kingdom of God. The same message that Jesus had, pleading, arguing, that they might come to understand He said in Acts 20, verse 25, when he was summing up his own preaching to the elders at Ephesus, And now, behold, I know that all you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom, that's the summary of his message, I have gone among you preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. So if you want to know how to sum up the apostolic preaching of Christ, you can sum it up, the preaching of the kingdom. According to Acts 20, 25. And one last summary statement in the book of Acts. The last two verses of the book. Acts 28, 30 and 31. You have Paul in uh, open custody. In a house. Free to preach. Not free to leave. Saying. Luke says. And he lived there two whole years. At his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him. Preaching the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite openly and unhindered. So from the first to last in the book of Acts, the summary of the apostolic preaching as he spread across the empire was he preached the gospel of the kingdom, which is what he was supposed to do according to Matthew 24, 14. And then if you look at his epistles in which he writes to the churches, 14 times he refers to the kingdom in texts like these. In Colossians 4:11, he refers to my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. All the workers that worked with Paul were called workers for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 4.20, he contrasts his ministry with those who are puffing themselves up in Corinth and he says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In other words, when I come, 
Do you want me to come with a rod or with love? Because when I come, kingdom power is coming. Or Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God does not consist in food and drink, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So here's my conclusion today. The gospel of the kingdom was foretold in the Old Testament. The gospel of the kingdom was prepared for by John the Baptist. The gospel of the kingdom was preached and brought by Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom was preached by the apostles in the early church. The gospel of the kingdom summarized the work of the ministers in the early church. And according to Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom is our charge until the end shall come, that we preach it to every unreached tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then the end will come. And therefore it behooves us to remember that the gospel of the kingdom is not merely the sovereign reign of God over all things, but is the intrusion and the unprecedented breaking in of that power and that authority and that reign and that rule, first of all, to deal with sin as he'd never dealt with it before. When Christ came, the king came, sin was dealt with as never before in the Old Testament. Everything was shadows and types until Jesus came. And then unprecedented, the king dealt with sin, never to be dealt with again in that way. And he came to deal with his enemies in an absolutely unprecedented way. Think about this. Where do you read of an exorcism in the Old Testament? Where do you read of a confrontation with Satan where a human being says, In the name of God Almighty, be gone, Satan. Nowhere in all the Old Testament. But with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, pow! Satan is attacked in a brand new way. The strong man is bound. Power is given over to the apostles to deal with him in an absolutely unprecedented way. And power is granted in an unprecedented way by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to all of God's children. There was power. There was Old Test um, spiritual anointing and fullness in the Old Testament. But there came into the world at Pentecost something strange and unprecedented. Wait until you are clothed with power from on high. And therefore, I think we have a lot to learn about the kingdom and about the gospel of the kingdom. And my closing exhortation is this. Repent. If you have been following another king, if there is another Lord in your life to whom you are yielding allegiance right now, renounce it. And just say in your heart, I'm done with it. No more Lords besides Jesus Christ. No more kings besides God Almighty in my life. Jesus is the Lord of my life. And accept the wonderful, gracious terms of amnesty that he extends. Here's a king who comes with his hands wide open to rebellious subjects who deserve the death sentence. And he says, I'll take you back if you'll just lay down your arms, bow before me, acknowledge me as Lord, and turn from all those former allegiances. Come on in. My son has paid the price. The document is signed with his blood. Amnesty for everyone who will repent.
and believe. And then let's take upon our lips one last time the words of Isaiah 52.7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Good news, announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Let's stand and sing.